0: Uh, let's be honest. Uh, banks, credit unions, they, they sell 95% of the same products at 95% of the same pricing, backed by 95% of the same policies and procedures. And yet, you know, my, my favorite conversation with bankers is always, well, our market's a little bit different.
1: listening to Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay, a podcast that empowers financial brand marketing, sales, and leadership teams to maximize their digital growth potential by generating 10 times more loans and deposits. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insights Series, where James Robert interviews the industry's top marketing, sales, and fintech leaders, sharing practical wisdom to exponentially elevate you and your team. Let's get into the show.
2: Greetings and hello. I am James Robert Lay and welcome to the 95th episode of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. Today's episode is part of the Exponential Insight series and I'm excited to welcome J.P. Nichols to the show. J.P. is a top rated speaker, advisor and podcaster. He is also the co-founder of Fintech Forge, as well as the co-founder of the Alloy Labs Alliance and has been named one of the top fintech influencers in the United States. Welcome to the show, J.P. Well, thanks, and thanks for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Um, You've been thinking a lot, writing a lot about innovation, but before we get there, what is one thing that you are just excited about right now, whether that be personally or professionally?
0: Well, personally, I'm excited that it's soccer season again. Uh, Not only uh, playing uh, horribly uh, a a little bit every week, and uh, but my beloved Seattle Sounders are back in action and off to a good start this year.
2: You're getting back in the game yourself, uh, playing eleven on eleven again,
0: right? Yeah, for the first time in 37 years. And how is that going? How you feeling? (laughs) I'm exhausted. (laughs) It's a lot of running. The good news is on the full field like that, there are times when the ball is a mile away from you. So you can actually stand and catch your breath a little bit. But when you have to run, you really have to run.
2: Absolutely. You know, it's, uh, I've been getting asked to go play back uh, basketball. I played basketball growing up and they asked me to come back and play on some leagues. And I'm like, I I have four small kids. You know, I've I've got this business and everything else. I would love to. And so I'll just keep doing my running thing in the short term. Uh, But no, I
0: I feel you on that, on that out of breath. Um, The only good news is I, I qualify this year for the over 60 age bracket and I'm at the lower end of that. So I finally found a peer group I can keep up with. Well, there you go and 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 I want to talk about this idea
2: of peer group because that's a that's an interesting segue into some of the work that you've been doing um, really over the last year, you know 12, fifteen months since this pandemic uh, surprised us all. Let's talk collaboration. Um, the need to collaborate in an environment like this versus trying to continue to work independently. Uh, amongst one another. Where are the opportunities there for collaboration?
0: There are so many. I mean, you think about the industry, uh, let's be honest, uh, banks, credit unions, they they sell 95% of the same products, at 95% of the same pricing backed by 95% of the same policies and procedures. And yet, you know, my my favorite conversation with bankers is always, well, our market's a little bit different. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm always still waiting for, explain to me the part that's that's really different, um, right? You have customers that have financial needs and we have to take care of them. And so there are so many things that um, you know, every bank is, is creating on their own where it would be much cheaper, much, much faster and a better outcome if they were collaborating with others. And that's one of the reasons why we started the Alloy Labs Alliance. We've, we started with, um, 12 founding banks in 2018. We've got about 50 today who are working together to, um, bring new ideas to market and, um, together make investments in the future, adopt new ideas and, uh, you know, the pandemic actually proved to be um, a good time for that because they were really faced with some complete uncertainties. You know, banking uh, as a profession has been around hundreds of years now, and so many of the so-called best practices have been around for, you know, decades, if not centuries. And um, we, were, we were talking before we recorded about uh, some of the teaching I do at the Graduate Schools of Banking. And and they're all about, like, teaching those best practices, the same things that everybody else is doing. And the pandemic really, um, you know, kind of threw out the playbook for everybody. And they had to adapt um, to that. Banks, even the, the biggest laggards that were, you know, holding off on digital transformation suddenly found, well, if none of my branches are open and I still have customers that I need to take care of, um, we're going to have to find some way to do that. So it, it really kind of opened things up over the past year or so.
2: Yeah, and you think
0: a lot about this
2: idea of innovation in financial services. You you wrote an article, it was titled uh, Banking's Apollo 13 Moment, and in that you had shared for more than a decade now, I've been trying to convince bankers that innovation is not optional and that organizations that were not innovating We're slowly dying. So I want to go back a decade because you talked about this idea of centuries and decades. Let's go back a decade and review what has happened around innovation in banking. And first off, what really kind of spurred the idea for you to focus on innovation to begin with in the first place? What inspired
0: you? Well, I spent 20 years as a banker um, helping to grow a $6 billion bank to a $400 billion bank. Today, that's known as U.S. Bank and in 2007 when richard davis became ceo he said you know there's a lot of great things you would say about us bank Uh, they were then as they are now um, back to peer group right a leader of the of the peer group of the top 10 banks number one in roa number one in roe number one in efficiency ratio but they weren't very innovative at the time and richard wanted to change that and i found that really exciting i mean i had a full-time day job i was chief private banking officer but I was asked to join a group of people to build what would end up being the first enterprise innovation office, um, uh, led by Dominic Venturo, who's, who's um, you know, now leading all of that across the whole firm and quite capably. And I really got onto this idea that you know there, we, we just spend so much time doing the same things a little bit better, a little bit better, and that's important too. I don't mean to denigrate um, incremental innovation. It's important to continue to improve the things that you're already doing. But there just weren't enough of us thinking enough about how do we do something completely new? How do we look at, you know, 10 years ago, we were still pretty early in the rise of fintech. Mm. But fintechs were starting to come out and solve problems that people really had that banks weren't thinking about yet. And, you know, we can go through any number of the, the biggest innovations of the last decade or so and uh i don't know if i can think of one that originated at a bank it's interesting that you talk about
2: incremental innovation versus what i would consider exponential innovation or more of that 10x thinking versus 2x thinking and 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 when you think about this and this is something that you've you've written about change happens in, in in two phases gradual change and then change that happens suddenly which you know gradually it takes time decades uh, when uh, from a horizon line and then suddenly we've, we've seen that with with covid being the accelerant when we think about the story of uh, Apollo 13 um, when that the, the crew uttered the famous words Houston Houston we've, we've had a problem we've had a problem you feel banking has had a problem how would you frame this problem and what is that
0: biggest challenge confronting banking right now well I wrote that post a year ago because we were on the 50th anniversary of that. It was kind of timely, but I saw parallels to um, the the pandemic. The Apollo 13 mission left um, Cape Canaveral, Cape Kennedy, um, with, uh, you know, one of the most ambitious uh, missions ever. They, they were going to do um, a, a lot of research on geology on the moon and, and looking at, um, uh, you know, uh, Flight paths and and orbit paths of uh, the moon and 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 um, uh, some of the other things that were um, happening in space and and they were really went very ambitiously. They had done however many trips to the moon by this point and and you know kind of became didn't seem as risky, right as Apollo eleven. Yeah, um, we've 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 done this a couple of times already. Let's uh, let's just get up there and and let's do all this research. And suddenly one little thing changed an oxygen leak that that threatened the life of the crew and so suddenly the mission of apollo 13 and all of nasa in fact all of the nation i would argue i'm really focused on can we bring those three men back to earth safely and i think the pandemic did that for the banking industry where um you know people did their strategic planning in the fall or Um, early in 2020 and all that got thrown out the window and suddenly they had to improvise. And and one of the stories about Apollo 13 is um, the the, the ground crew in in Houston were um, mocking up a way to use the oxygen uh, tanks from the lunar escape module to be used in in the command module. And it didn't quite fit. (laughs) Another analogy to banking technology, right? The pieces didn't always connect very well. And they literally were using duct tape and uh, covers of manuals. And and at one point they said, you know, stuff a sock down in the bottom to fill it up. Innovation is often messy like that. And um, bankers are kind of not wired to think uh, about messy and uh, duct tape and stuffing socks and things. Uh, They really want to believe it's something that we could put our best minds around a big conference table at a nice resort somewhere and say, boy, we've got a good strategic plan. You know, now let, let's go after it. And it really threw a wrench into that. So um, I, I think it the pandemic exposed this lack of um, real commitment to digitization that is right in front of all of us. I mean, we live our lives, so many of us. Um, pretty digitally, watching whatever we want on demand, ordering whatever we want. And that only increased during the uh, pandemic, you know, from food to, to merchandise delivered contactlessly to our home. And to kind of hide all of that and say, Well, yeah, begrudgingly, I guess we should have digital account opening, but I'm not really gonna change anything else. And you know, I I call that putting digital lipstick on the analog pig. It just isn't the same good thing. enough. Yep. Same
2: thing. And, you know, I think this idea of change and transformation, you you, you hit the nail on the head when you say that the, most of the core functions uh, of banking have not and probably will not change, you know, will continue to take and hold deposits, make loans, provide liquidity, move money in and out, provide financial advice and pro. Products, but even though the the what won't change, you believe it's the how, the how a financial brand delivers these these core functions. For example, to back to this point, the way we buy and consume media, movies, music, even food now post pandemic groceries, it's the how that has transformed the most. And so when we look at the how of transformation. What what are those opportunities there for financial brands, for banks, for credit unions?
0: Well, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll hit a quick threat first before I talk about the opportunities, because sure. um, what, what you described there, um, the medium is um, invisible. Right, it, it's not that I want to uh, be staring at my phone or my iPad or whatever. It's that I want to watch that new series on Amazon, and the phone makes it possible. And so, for banks that are used to being that, um, you know, third party between uh, borrowers and depositors, mm-hmm. and between um, you know, counterparties and in, in transactions, and so on. Um, the the distribution of finance uh, you know with with a middle man being taken out is is an existential threat. Yeah. And, and, and I think the opportunities um, are, are I, first of all, I'll say I think that's one of the things that's hardest for leaders to understand. Um, they look at their customer satisfaction scores you know, because they often ask the wrong thing. Hey, you came into the branch. How did that go? And people go, yeah, it's pretty good. Everybody's really nice. And, you know, uh, I did exactly what I in, wanted to do. We're not asking kind of the other questions. Well, what if that could have been done automatically uh, not only you know, done on your phone? What if you didn't even have to come in at all and it already did it. And so that's pretty daunting to a lot of leaders, but to, to your, question about the opportunities well, before we get there i actually want to yeah. give an anecdotal story because i think this
2: would make a lot of yeah. sense like you talk about the medium is invisible let's go back the year is 1996 um what are you doing on a friday night uh you know where are you going uh if you have kids for the dear listener or where are you going yourself with 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 your your significant other
0: you walk into this place and what are you going to rent yeah Right. Um, you know, you're, you're, alluding to Blockbuster, which, which is, uh, you know, an overused analogy and yet underexamined in, in my It's opinion. the underexamined piece of this that I yeah. want to dive into because. Yeah. So, so, so if you think about the, 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 home entertainment market, the home video market, right? That was a super fragmented industry, mom and pop shops, a couple hundred square feet, couple hundred titles uh, in stock and Amazon, uh, sorry, Blockbuster at the time, executed that business model better than anybody else, right? So they invested in um, 10,000 square foot stores in grade A spaces, um, trained uh, people to make recommendations. They they put massive investment into quantities of the movies so that uh, the ones you wanted were in stock. They had regional warehouses with barcodes. Because it it was horrible. You'd walk in there and you want to get the latest release and all the films would be gone. It was a a
2: bad experience.
0: Well, I used to joke, you know, you walk in all excited after work to come home with Beverly Hills Cop, and then you walk out with Camp Beverly Hills. (laughs) Because that's the best you could do. Right. and so Blockbuster changed all that, and they were, at one point, had 40% global market share of the home entertainment market. I mean, it's easy to laugh at Blockbuster now, um, but that was not just a good company. It was a great company. Yes. And if you think back to um, the, the the first uh, major competition, what, what would end up putting them out of business, Netflix, and think about what their original business model. Remember, it was red envelopes. Correct. Uh, and, and I often use this as an example in the boardroom and in the classroom. Um, I, I ask people to put themselves in the shoes of the leadership or the board of Blockbuster. And somebody says, guys, we have to pay attention to this. Um, we've got this new competitor. It, it would be completely normal and rational to laugh at that and yes. say, oh, they're mailing a DVD and, and I'll get it in a few days. Oh, that's not you know look at our customers who are just thrilled at, at walking around on friday night it's packed in here and they're buying twizzlers and popcorn along the way but you know we understand point? what the experience is the yeah well point. So- the apocryphal story is supposedly is uh, the egregious late fee, um, right? The supposedly now Reed Hastings is as some sort of disavowed the story, but uh, that he returned ironically Apollo 13 um, <laughs> and had a, a massive uh, late fee. And um, so began to you know, craft a, a new um, a competitor for this. Now, also apocryphally supposedly he also had an eye towards digital all along. And, and, um, I don't know if this is a little bit of retcon history, but supposedly, um, you know, the story goes, well, we knew that this was going to be all digital at some point, the technology just wasn't there yet. So we were building our database and building out the long tail where we could have, you know, nothing was ever out of stock because we could always have it here. You might have to wait a few weeks to get it, but, um, it's completely understandable how Blockbuster missed that, and you probably also know this part of the story that, um, you know, block, uh, Netflix had a hard time scaling and offered to sell themselves yes. for fifty million million. They were literally laughed out of the room by yep. Blockbuster management. We'll just watch you die. Yeah. And you know, so you asked the question. You know what what's the pain point? And, um, it's not always obvious. And mm-hmm. so where I try to help people spend more time is really digging deep beyond those surface questions of, Hey, how was the branch transaction day? Oh, it was good. So everything's good. We don't need to change everything. Um, I I'm a big subscriber of jobs theory. Yeah. Um, you know, people hire products to do jobs for them. And the more you can understand that job, the pains they're trying to avoid and the gains they're trying to achieve. And, and it's, um, and it's often several layers deep and the customers don't know. Uh, supposedly, Henry Ford never really said, um, if um, I would ask asked my customers, they would have said um, they wanted a faster horse, but that's too good of a story to let go. Um, so I continue to repeat that story too. It's not just asking the customers, hey, what about this? There there are so many um, opportunities and where we're focused right now, the banks we work with is um, what my partner, Jason Henricks has been calling the edge of money. And his point is that financial institutions have been focused on being the center of money. And um, the opportunities are really on the edge because at the center of money, it's debits and credits and dollars and cents. And we're really good at managing that. We're really good at that. What we're not so good at is understanding the context and the subtleties that, you know, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm here applying for this loan is not because I want a banking experience is because I need a new home because my uh, I'm relocating or my family's expanding or whatever.
1: loans, and deposits. Now, back to the show.
2: Well, when you think about being at the center of money, think about Blockbuster. They were at the center of that movie rental entertainment experience. And right. we remove the middleman out of the equation. You're starting to see that now trending with crypto because now we can I can pay directly, blockchain, all of that. That's And so I like this idea of moving from the center uh, out to the edges um, I can't help but think of another film analogy of mr. Miyagi when you walk in the <laughs> middle of the road well, actually when you walk on the left side you're okay when you walk on the right side you're okay but when you walk down the middle just like grape so right. this is yeah this is, that's a great point right there about moving from the middle to the edge of money.
0: Well, and, and and that's where the blue oceans are, right? But that's where the opportunities are to do something different. Everybody's playing in the middle of all of that. And, you know, I, I just don't have a lot of brand promises to make about, hey, don't worry, um, we'll move your money quickly and efficiently and cheaply and we won't lose a penny. Well, neither is any other bank. It, it's kind of like, you know, so many, and I know marketing's your domain and not mine, but I think about, um, you know, just like automobiles. Hey, I, I want an automobile and, you know, I need to have um, power windows and I need to have power brakes and airbags and the navigation system and all of those kinds of things. Well, any car will do, right? Yep. That, that's not what, what marketing is, is all about. It, it's a, about a, a much bigger and more esoteric brand promise around that. And that's hard to do. And I know a lot of um, financial institutions have tried that, and they try kind of fluffy, you know, marketing around, you know, feel-good moments and all that kind of stuff. But it has to be met with um, kind of solving um, some problems that customers actually care about.
2: Well, that's where jobs theory, I think, comes back into play. And Derek Sutton and I over at AutoBooks, we just had a really good conversation about that a couple of episodes ago um, because it really is about, you know, what are the people's biggest questions and concerns? what are their hopes and dreams and then what what jobs are that are needed to perform to to bridge that gap between and so when you look at the edge of money what are those opportunities at the edge that you're seeing for financial
0: brands well, first of all, I would say autobooks is great, and we love derek we're We're actually working with him with a number of our members and and uh, I assume he talked about this with you, but you know they're really looking at um you know paying the invoice that ought to be the center right that's the key job that small businesses have. I think there's so many opportunities um for the small business we we're still in the early stages of all fintech um in consumer banking but we're really just barely out of the starting gates on the small business side and customers have so many needs around moving money and um 81 of businesses don't have any employees uh derek may have talked to you about this we talked to him about this recently and he's talked about looking at banks and finding customers hiding in consumer accounts, but they're yep. making business transactions because they're blending that. They don't want, yes, they can go open a zero or QuickBooks account or whatever. They don't want to, they don't want to be a CFO. They want to, you know, make furniture or sell hats or whatever their business does. It's the rise of the gig economy too. I think we're going yes. to see more and more of this
2: going forward.
0: Well, and and the rise of the, the gig worker and the needs that they have are early being addressed. Um, You you know, so much of the banking industry is still built around, um, you know, you you work for a company for 35 years and have a pension and a 401k and a regular paycheck and um, all of those kinds of things that are less and less true every day for everybody. So there are so many opportunities around understanding What are you actually trying to achieve here, and is there a better way of doing it? The other classic story outside of banking we talk about a lot: Swiffer, right? Um, You know, for years um, manufacturers made uh, more water absorbent mops, less absorbent mops, er ergonomically designed buckets, and all this. When when the final solution came about, it wasn't a mop or a bucket, right? The Swiffer is a you know category in and of itself, multi-billion dollar category for Procter & Gamble, because they understood there was a job to be done. Yes, clean the floor, but a good enough job that's really quick and doesn't make me messy in the meantime. It's those subtleties around things like that. And that's why it's interesting to see like what players uh, like Shopify are doing,
2: right? So that's the e-commerce side, but then they have this whole new line that they're bringing on. And when, and when you look at the, the website, it, it, it almost is framed around the jobs to be done, start like start a business sell online market your products and manage and under manage you have payments shipping and capital so it's really framed around these different jobs that a business would need to
0: do to make money right and I, i think square and paypal do that really well yep and um You know, some banks do, but there's still a a lot of opportunity for traditional financial institutions, banks and credit unions to to really, um, you know, every rock hasn't been turned over yet. There's lots of opportunity out there. Absolutely. And when you think about innovation
2: in financial services and think back over the past decade or so, what is a commonly held belief that others might have, that even the dear
0: listener might have, that you just might passionately disagree with? Um, I, I think financial institutions um, take much higher stock in their very definition. Um, hey we 're a community bank, and that really mm. means something to people, or we 're a credit union, and that really means something. It, it means something greater than zero right they 're not completely wrong about that yep. um, i mean this this came up recently with the ruling against chime and apparently uh, pending against some of the other neo banks they can 't call themselves a bank, and I tweeted out kind of a joke that the laggard banks are going to say, "Ah, checkmate, game over right can 't call yourselves a bank now what are you going to do? well, they're con- going to continue to have 12 million customers um, who are really happy and they're going to continue to grow. And so I, I think the labels um, matter far less to consumers yes. than, um, than the financial institutions think they do.
2: You know, and you think this idea of, legacy of, and this is from a marketing perspective, the, you know, position around the, the, the best place to work in this city. And that's their, their, that's part of their go-to-market strategy. And I come in from the outside, I'm like, no one cares. Now, maybe best place to work from a recruitment and HR, absolutely, that's important. But if you're talking about growth and acquisition and retention, does it really matter
0: so I personally, I think there's some value in that I uh, and, and the, the people that I know in the industry are really sincere about this. They really do care about their communities and they really do invest in their communities. And that's wonderful. I, I don't want them to stop that. All I'm saying is um, there are probably about 48 other things that consumers value higher than that. Oh, and I agree. You need to pay attention to those things.
2: I agree. And and when you talk about paying attention and looking for areas to focus around, you teach a framework about innovation through the work that you're doing over at Alloy Labs called FIRE. And I love acronyms because that's how this ADD mind can actually remember things. And so we have a lot of acronyms that we use over here as well. And FIRE is an acronym for Fast Iterative Responsive Experiments. Can you briefly break down this framework and really kind of this idea of
0: experimentation? Sure. Um, Well, I'll hit each one quickly, right? First is fast, and and that's really important. Um, I often joke that um, financial institution leaders tell me, hey, we're a fast follower, And uh, I often reply, well, you're half right. There's nothing fast about anything you're doing, but you're definitely a follower. And um, I get that very few institutions want to be out on the bleeding edge to launch something nobody's ever done before. And that's fine. But you've got to be reasonably fast. There's literally a a bank in 2019 that was um, practically bragging to me about how you were going to soon be able to take out um, your phone and take a picture of checks and actually make a deposit through their mobile app. Can you imagine this, right? What what an incredible innovation they had. Wow. And I said, yeah, that'd be great if this was 20, 2009, right? Not, not in 2019. So if you don't have remote deposit capture, by all means, go do it. But don't tell me that that's game changing for you, right? That's catch up spending. So that's fast. Iterative meaning that um, we want to continually tweak. It's not um, think really hard, launch and success, Um, It's that we're continually learning from the market, learning from customers and um, uh, adapting from that. Um, Responsive meaning that what's driving those iterations is data. I also like to joke um, that in the absence of data, what we have to go with is what we call the hippo. It's the highest paid person's opinion. (laughs) And, And I think of Jim Barksdale when he was CEO of Netscape. And he uh, used to say, look, if we're gonna go with data, let's go with data. But if we're gonna go with opinions, let's just go with mine. And sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes um, you, you just need to make a leap and a leader has to make a decision, but leaders can make better decisions the more data they have. And finally experiment. Um, and it, the important thing about experiment is it means you don't really know what the outcome is. You have a hypothesis and you want to test it. So the key is testing it as quickly and as cheaply as possible to find out. And the analogy I use here is I often uh, talk about uh, playing poker. And and I often joke around um, if I'm in the classroom or the boardroom and, and I'll say, hey, guys, uh, does anybody here play poker? I'm learning, I'm watching it on television. And I understand that what you are supposed to do is push all your chips into the center of the table at the beginning of the game. And you stand up and you say, I'm all in. Is is that how you play? And of course, anybody that understands poker kind of laughs. And somebody usually says, oh boy, I'd love to have you at my game if you think that's how it works. (laughs) And so it's a little bit of a Socratic dialogue to get them to understand that, look, you want as little money on the table as possible when you don't have any cards because cards represent data. I have no idea what's going to happen. Um, What's the minimum I can do to get in this game. And then once I get cards, I get data. And if the data looks good, I want more money on the table. If the data looks bad, I'm going to fold and come back and try something else, a different experiment. Now it's not a guarantee, right? Even if I hold four Kings, um, I, I can still be beaten, but at least that's where I want to put more money. And so, uh, it, 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 so it makes so much sense in the context of of poker, but yet that's not how we do strategic planning. We think that when we look at big projects with big risks and big budgets, that the idea is to think harder, ask more questions, create a longer um, a set of due diligence questions or an RFP um, to try to get all the technical questions answered and, and then, you know, threaten somebody with, you know, this is your tail if this doesn't work. And then, then, you know, cross our fingers and launch. And you know, reality is it's a lot less risky if we figure out how to break that down into a series of smaller bets and try things. And so that's really the art. Uh, fires. How do we break these things down into small experiments and learn along the way? Yeah, MVP, minimum
2: viable product, 80%, get it 80% of the way, get it out, test it, iterate it. Just had a conversation with Joe Polizzi, who was the CEO of the Content Marketing Institute and wrote a great book uh, that he's re-releasing now called Content Inc. Second Edition. And there's a lot of this thinking that can be applied in, in multiple areas of the financial brand, whether that be on the innovation side, whether that be on the marketing side, the technology side, uh, the sales side, the opera. I mean, so literally, we can keep keep thinking about this idea of fast, iterative, responsive experiments. You know, when when you go in and you're you're teaching this, what what are some of the mental blocks that might hold? An individual or a team back from really saying, you know what? I get it, I understand it philosophically, and I love the idea of Socratic discussions. That's a conversation for another day, right there. But uh, that's the teacher to me coming out. But what holds people back from really accepting and acting on this type of thinking here?
0: Well, I think there's there's a lot of things, and um, we're we're fans of the work of Carol Dweck and the growth, growth mindset. mindset. Yeah. And, um, you know, anytime you're an incumbent in an industry and especially a mature industry, um, it's really easy to um, have your your mind kind of framed by, look, there's a empirically right answer here. And um, we're doing the best practices and 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 we're looking at um, our peer group and, and we're measuring all these things and, and we're missing all those things that are happening on the other side. Um, There's probably another layer of financial services in particular, a business where um, you have to be right 99 point something percent of the time in your credit decisions. And that's the number one driver of earnings is net interest income. Yep. I was um, just with a group of students a couple of weeks ago, and, and we got into a little bit of this discussion. And I said, you know, I find it ironic. I said, please tell me if there's one I'm not aware of, because I can't think of a single bank that failed because of their innovation program or their digital banking. Right? Every bank that's ever failed has failed because um, they've taken on, um, you know, too much of the wrong kind of credit. And um, and and isn't that ironic? That's the part that they know the best. Um, the, the part that's been perfected of the whole industry is is you know taking in deposits and marking it up and lending it back out. Yet that's the number one cause of failure. And then, uh, but I guess it's just the devil you know versus yeah. the devil that you don't know. And so there's just a, a, a lot of um, fear around the uncertainty of things. Technology creates another layer of fear and uncertainty. And so many of our leaders today Um, In the financial services industry, don't have a strong technical background. And um, I, I don't know that you have to be a programmer necessarily, but you do have to be kind of comfortable with technology. And so what they often do is then delegate important strategic decisions to the tech team. And I'll never forget a CIO that once told me, you know, my worst day is when the CEO goes out to another tech conference and I comes back with 10 business cards. Hey, these companies are all cool. You ought to go, you know, we ought to work with them. And go shiny talk yeah, them.
2: shiny object syndrome.
0: Right. And so then you have all of these kind of disconnected um, projects that aren't moving the needle anywhere. And, you know, we've seen this, you know, we've talked about over the past decade or so. One of the other things that's, kind of come and sort of gone is the rise of the chief innovation officer and an innovation team, right? All the big banks have them and still have them. Most of them have turned over. Um, Some of the smaller banks have tried it and have said, well, that was a whole big waste of time because they thought it was about, you know, thinking really hard and finding the next big idea, not finding a little idea and iterating on it till it becomes meaningful. Yeah, I just heard a great conversation
2: from uh, Jeff Bezos talking about this idea of innovation uh, at Amazon and how all of the massive failures – and he was talking billions and billions and failures – one success, though – It covers all of that and then some. I want to bring this all the way back to the beginning, and and, and JP, this has been a great conversation. and appreciate the thinking and the insights that you've shared today for the dear listener. But to start this conversation, you said innovation is messy. Uh, Innovation is messy. And when we think about this idea of change and transformation, incremental, you know, small start small progress is greater than perfection what is one small step one small recommendation you can leave the dear listener with today that they can take action on just to take one step forward in
0: their innovation journey um you just start running experiments right even if they're not framed very well um just try some things and and then the key there is there's a, a misunderstanding that that risk is kind of binary. Things are either risky or not risky. Um, so so think about what are the degrees of risk. If, if you're going to test this thing, um, what's the biggest question you have? Uh, my partner, Jason, likes to call it the killer experiment, right? If this one thing isn't true, nothing else matters. So go test that. And so most often, that probably has something to do with customer acceptance, and instead we see so many institutions spend all their time on the technical feasibility. Unless you're doing something incredibly experimental, uh, it's probably technically feasible, you know, maybe sure. at a price you can afford, maybe not. Um, but I would really encourage everybody to focus their experiments on the customer and um, just try some things in that you don't have to build it. You can uh, build brochureware and vaporware and. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many so-called quote websites I build on PowerPoint, just say, Hey, it would look like this. And you click here and it does this, you know, tell me what you think. Um, and rapid really, prototype development. Exactly. And just, um, trying some things and then, um, talking to your customers in that way, you know, you know, maybe a couple of years ago, James, Robert, I might've said, um, the answer to that was talk to your customers. And I think what I've heard a lot in those years is, oh, we do that. We, we do talk to our customers, but we talk to them about the stuff that we already do. And so um, experiment with your customers is probably better advice. And um, it, we've seen just such positive um, learning experiences from people that have done that and learned things that they never knew and never would have found out.
2: Absolutely. And to build upon that thinking as we wrap up here, talking, yes, but people don't always tell the truth. That's why you can undercut that talking by just simply watching and observing their behavior and action in any type of these experiments. And you combine the two data sets together, the quantitative and the qualitative. And that's where I think you're going to get some massive breakthroughs. JP, anyone who's listening, they want to continue the conversation that we've started today. What is the best way for them to reach out, say hello, connect with you?
0: Well, I'm on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn, J.P. Nichols, N-I-C-O-L-S, no H, um, and uh, at AlloyLabs.com. All right.
2: Connect with J.P. Learn from J.P. And J.P., thank you for joining me for another episode of Banking on Digital Growth. Well, thanks for having me. As always, and until next time, be well, do good, and make your bed.